Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pairs Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. We talk a lot on this show about the importance of fresh citrus and how vital that's been to America's cocktail renaissance. This episode is going to buck that trend somewhat, because in the instance of today's cocktail, using fresh citrus or using only fresh citrus yields neither a historically accurate version of the drink nor the best example of it. I'm talking about the Gimlet, and more specifically, Toby Cicchini's Gimlet. Toby is the co-owner of New York's Long Island Bar and Rockwell Place, and he's probably best known as the inventor of the Cosmopolitan. It's actually an attribution he's struggled with a bit over the years. What with so many bartenders coming up to him and saying, oh, you're that asshole who invented that drink that I now spend 90% of my evenings making. I think he's come to peace with it now, though. But I'd argue that Toby deserves more recognition for his gimlet and his approach to one ingredient in particular that was lost to history. I'm not going to give anything else away here, but I will say this. After listening to today's episode, get ready, because you're going to want to go out and buy a shed load of limes, and you might find yourself investing in an industrial juicer. So, juicers at the ready, let's get into it. Toby Cicchini, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And I'm really excited to talk about your gimlet today. But I think before we get into that, we need to kind of take a look at the six feet tall, bright pink martini glass in the room and just get something out of the way first. I'm actually, sir, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to get that out of the way first because when you asked me to come on this podcast, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, I, I had, what did I you think? What go, did you think I was going to ask you on for? Yeah, obviously, we're going to ask about the Cosmopolitan. So we're going to ask about like, the Cosmopolitan. I, really? Do I have to go do this? I just, and then when you said, you know, I'd love to talk to you about your gimlet and your, your sort of reinvention of the cordial and whatnot, I was like, Oh, happy day. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that is what we're getting into today. But just to bring some folks up to speed, or people will recognize your name on the pod, and they're thinking Toby Cicchini. So the year, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but brief rundown here. It's the late 80s. You're working in the meatpacking district when meatpacking is still happening, or that area, no. right? Uh, it's 1988, and I'm working at the Odeon. You're at the Odeon. Is that not the meatpacking? It's in Tribeca. Tribeca, Okay. Mm-hmm. My, my, I've been to the Odeon, by the way. I'm just terrible with New York yeah, boroughs. Yeah. My, my ladder bar, Passerby, was in the Meatpacking District. Okay. And you essentially, you're playing around with a flavored spirit. You reinvent, or you create a new spin on a cocktail that's doing the rounds on the West Coast. It's basically pink. It has the name Cosmopolitan. But you come up with a whole new way of making it. It's a drink for the staff. And then it bleeds out into New York City and the world to the point where today I can go back to my folks at home in in England, and I can pass my mom a cocktail glass with that drink in it, and she'll be like, oh, a Cosmopolitan. I haven't had one in a while. Right. That's the story of the Cosmo, right? Um, In a nutshell. In a nutshell. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it was not, I wouldn't say it was making the rounds of the West Coast. It was a very, very niche thing that had been a really dreadful drink in sort of leather bars in San Francisco. and a friend of mine, a uh, woman that I worked with actually, brought to my attention that friends of hers in San Francisco had shown her. She was like, let me, let me show you this drink that my friends showed me last night. And it was made of real vodka and Rose's lime juice and Rose's grenadine. Mm-hmm. This is very relevant later. for our conversation yes, today. Exactly. <laughs> um, and it was disgusting. And I thought, oh, that's, that's really cute, but it's grotesque. And so, yeah, um, yeah, absolute. So one day maybe, a, you know, one day... Perhaps we'll be able to persuade you to come back for the conversation about the Cosmopolitan. But today we are talking about the Gimlet. And 
the reason that I wanted to speak with you about the gimlet, it's not even just to be contrarian or whatever, it's because your approach to one of the ingredients in this drink, in your version of this drink, to me epitomizes what we're trying to do with this show, with Cocktail College, and that's re-examining something, questioning things, and ultimately going beyond what's kind of accepted um, and expected in the industry. So if you were to go into most kind of good, decent cocktail bars today and ask for a gimlet, you know, maybe you might want to call them third wave cocktail bars or whatever, you know, if we're using the coffee analogy. Yeah. But if I ask for a gimlet, what's someone typically going to serve me? In a bespoke cocktail bar in a cocktailian setting, I think most people are like, well, obviously I have to use fresh lime juice. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, this was me, you know, 12 years ago. Uh, what is a gimlet exactly? It's sort of like a Ricky, but it's no, there's no soda. And uh, I know there's gin. I know there's lime. Uh, I mean, the gimlet has a long, long history. Mm-hmm. But people these days don't know the history. Mm-hmm. They don't know what an actual gimlet is. Mm-hmm. A gimlet is actually made with lime cordial. Instead of sugar, lime, and gin. Yeah, sugar, lime, and gin. And so I think most bartenders these days, or you know, up to some years ago, would make it only with fresh lime juice, some sugar, and gin. There's your, your gimlet. And, and, and the basic consumer is none the wiser and thinks, oh, this, mm. is, this is amazing. Which fresh is a lime. delicious concoction, sure. by the way. That's a gin sour. And that's, it's know, just not a classic gimlet. <laughs> it's not a gimlet in, in any way, shape, or form, in fact. And I love the kind of almost tension here because... In many respects, we talk about the the cocktail renaissance, whatever you want to call it, right? Mm-hmm. But as as being largely fueled by re-embracing fresh citrus. But in this case, that's actually causing the demise of the historically accurate version of the drink, which isn't what normally happens. Interesting point, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, fre- I, when I do use, to be clear, fresh citrus also in my gimlet mm-hmm. um, because cordial as I make it is a very thick, very sweet, viscous, you know, concoction and you need something to balance it out. So I use fresh lime juice as well. Mm. But So let's talk about that cordial or cordial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll take listener comments on the correct pronunciation there. I'm going with cordial. Um, but tell us about your journey to, to kind of questioning this, this recipe and developing your version of a, of a cordial that's, you know, historically accurate or or aims to be (laughs) yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to remember what my original impetus was um uh 10 years or so ago i was writing an a column for the new york times called uh case study and i took this up as one of my pieces because i think i was just i mean like it came up maybe it just came up in the bar maybe somebody ordered a gimlet and i was like you know that's that's one of those things like the mai tai which i also wrote about where i was just like i actually don't know what that is and I probably should because I've always kind of mm-hmm. futzed my way through it and been like oh I'll just throw some things in there that sound kind of tropical-esque and that'll be a Mai Tai um and the same thing with the, with the gimlet I thought uh that's lime and stuff right I'm not really sure what that is when I started researching it uh I found out that it was in fact lime cordial and that the only commercially available lime cordial is roses mm-hmm and roses is disgusting, and we all uh, sort you of you already knew this from your your experience with the Cosmo. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, and roses is 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 not the absolute worst thing in the world in a gimlet. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had it and thought, eh, I can live with that. You know, squeeze a couple of fresh limes into it. And, you know, in in the worst case scenario, you can live with it, um, but it's not good. And, uh, and it certainly has no place in a in a proper bar where people are doing things correctly. So. I set out to figure out what actual lime cordial was. And so there must be a recipe for this kind of thing. And there must be a lot written about it. Not actually so much. You, ha- you can do a very deep dive and find um, some recipes and this and that. But um, the history of it is, is kind of cloaked and obscured and goes well back to and possibly before. But it really points back to the British uh, naval um, mm-hmm. tradition of... of some type of antiscorbutic in order to, you know, measure out a dose for the sailors who are dying of scurvy. Mm-hmm. Um, Which comes from lime. The, 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 the kind of uh, 
prevention there. Yeah, yeah. What's the word that you used there? I'm learning. Antiscorbutic. Very nice. Yes. Um, Yeah, so you have to weigh uh, to jimmy vitamin C into people so they don't die on board ship for years. And so this was a way of preserving limes and and preserving them in a way that obviously there was no refrigeration. Mm Mm-hmm. They made the stuff. They they made it initially with, I think, a base of rum, mm-hmm. but also a great deal of sugar, a great deal of lime, and they would put it in barrels, and these barrels would be just lashed into a ship mm-hmm. and travel across the equator God knows how many times in how many different uh, climates for years on end and still be... You know, palatable yeah not just Potable. palatable but <laughs> <laughs> be actually hygienic and 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 uh and render vitamin c unto mm-hmm. the troops so um it's and also sur- by by transforming it from fresh you're saving a lot of space which is a key consideration if you're if you're running uh well if if you're on a ship yeah let's certainly say. you're saving a ton of space but but also uh there'd be no way of keeping those those limes fresh mm-hmm. aboard ship i mean for for uh, actually right. citrus stays stays kind of afloat for a lot longer than you might expect. I mean, sometimes up to months, mm-hmm. but still, yeah, yeah, you need years in extremely torrid conditions. And so I became sort of fascinated by the way there must be some way to actually take the juice and or the oil, specifically the citrus oil that's incredibly aromatic, and somehow cure this so that it keeps and keeps for a long time. And, and so I started researching recipes and looking for other people doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, and I only really came upon one other bartender, this fellow Todd Apple Mm -hmm. who, um, works out of Chicago and, uh, he has his own, uh, company now doing syrups and potions and cordials and this and that. And, uh, he, he's a great guy. And, uh, so he and I started, uh, communicating about this, and and he also was in the beginning stages of. He's like, yeah, I've also been fascinated by this, but I, I don't really know exactly what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm taking. I was mixing some juice with water and heating it, and putting sugar, and then putting the peels in. He had extracted all the water and and pared it down to simply the juice and and the peels, and he was putting the peels in very quickly after heating, after cooling. Mm-hmm. So we were both kind of messing around with this and, and contacting each other like, well, I made a version that's like this. Well, I did this and I did this. And the version that I ended up uh, liking the most, I had concocted sort of after his where I got rid of all the water. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to extract the, the, uh, the citrus oil separately because of, because of my f- sort of take on my father's gin and tonic had made me aware that like that very, very aromatic agrumo that citrus oil yeah is maybe the most important part of citrus it is it is just so smashing it's so powerful i thought there must be a way to extract that first and also sorry but that's what really sets this cordial apart because you're you don't need to use it right you're you're not crushing you're not crossing an ocean so otherwise we're just talking juice and sugar which is essentially fresh juice and simple syrup, the way that it's being made in bars. So it's that citrus oil that really kind of takes this ingredient to the next level. Right. And so obviously people were doing um, oleosaccharum at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, Which is, can you just explain in, in case some folks don't know that? Yeah. Oleosaccharum is a, is a way of using what's called the capillary action of sugar to extract um, the oil of citrus from the peel, wherein, wherein basically you just take dry sugar and you be, you bury the citrus peel in the sugar and you leave it overnight and through this amazing magic, by the next day you just have this unbelievably aromatic sort of slush mm-hmm. that is simply citrus oil that's been drawn out of the peel by the sugar. It is now imbued into the sugar. And um, I thought that's the way to go, but then where do I take it from there? Well, sugar is a preservative in and of itself. So we have jams and whatnot, which are use sugar as a preservative. So that's already preservative. But now you've got, you've peeled all these limes. And so now you have the fruit sitting there. You have to juice them. And so you add the juice back into the oleosaccharum. Mm-hmm. And the juice is very acidic. And so that's another way of cooking or curing something. You use that in ceviche. So you use this extremely acidic um, juice of lime or lemon. And that virtually cooks protein in a ceviche. I thought that, you know, let's see if that doesn't work the same magic in this. And so 
it's hard going. You have this oleosaccharum that's a huge amount of sugar and lime peel and, and oil together. It's labor intensive. It's very labor intensive. And so then you juice all the limes and you add all the juice in and you have to stir and stir and stir and stir and stir until you get this stuff somewhat sort of put together. And then you just have to leave it. I mean, initially when I made this recipe, I was like, oh, you have to leave it overnight in the refrigerator. In point of fact, I mean, you have to leave it for out. Yeah, room for a couple 10. of days and keep stirring it and keep stirring it and keep stirring it. And then eventually it sort of comes into its own and becomes this very viscous, uh, sweet but sour, but incredibly just, just brimming with aromatics. I mean, it turns into this magic ingredient that is cordial. I mean, it, it doesn't, it's, it's now cured. The peel is cured. The juice and the sugar cure all, everything all together. Yeah. And now you strain it off. So you strain the peels out. Mm-hmm. There are people who will tell you, well, you have to strain the peels out much earlier because, you know, that makes things bitter. I don't know. This is sort of the bugaboo of the bar industry. Yeah. Like anything people want to sound professional about, they say, oh, that makes it bitter. Yeah. Oh, you have to twist something three feet from the drink because otherwise, you know, those... It'll make it bitter. I mean, I mean, don't we all love bitters? Isn't bitters right. the thing that we're all looking for in drinks nowadays? I, I haven't found that there's any particular bitterness to avoid in leaving those peels in there for two days, three days, whatever you want. Like, we now run huge batches of this mm-hmm. cordial through my bar on a on a weekly basis, and you know sometimes that can sit there for a week. It doesn't matter. Um, it's complexity as well. Like this is this is every part of the lime. We're not just using yeah. the juice or the or even the the essential oils. Yeah, you're you're incorporating the whole thing. So, uh, I you know, I don't there's nothing precious about it. You mm-hmm. can just throw this stuff together. It's a lot of sugar, it's a lot of juice and it's and it's all the peels. Mm-hmm. And it's going to make itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's And I know there was a time after straining, I'm not sure is this still the way that you do it, but certain time you would also incorporate some ginger into that, which in my mind just works immediately like it makes so much sense, but maybe it's not historically accurate. I'm not sure. Um, is that something that you still do, or you, you don't go down that route anymore? No, we we do do. I mean, you do do at that. my bar, we do that. Yeah. That's that's sort of our our house blend is a lime ginger cordial. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went from sort of peeling ginger and then um, on, in small batches and and blending it up with a blender with the cordial and then leaving that for a day or two and then restraining it out to simply buying this enormous, enormous industrial juicer that can actually handle ginger because ginger is yeah. uh, insanely fibrous and will just break down a regular juicer literally within 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to get a specific machine that costs something on the order of $4.5 million. Wow. Yeah, but it's worth it because it it's really goes it. through ginger. Just like it just produces a stream of pure ginger juice it's a pneumatic juicer i believe right rather no, than those motor ones no no it's a motor it's a big grinder it's a motor yeah it's a big grinding motor it, it's a brutal thing um and and it fills the hole we do it down in the basement prep kitchen of the of the barn and, and everyone's coughing and your eyes hurt like ginger is really i imagine that to be very nice maybe maybe you know <laughs> i don't know clears the sinuses yeah, it's pretty in a candle, you know, yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you're making like literal gallons of ginger juice, it's, uh, it's pretty toxic. It's volatile stuff. Jeez. Um, yeah, British so, Navy would be proud. Yeah. And so then we just pour the juice directly into the finished, uh, the lime cordial and, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's amazing. And again, the acidity and, and the sugar content of that cordial as well is probably helping to preserve that. It's not going to go fizzy, the, the ginger juice. It doesn't ever go off i I actually don't know people are like how long can i keep this Mm -hmm. and i don't really have an answer for it i Mm -hmm. found a bottle of lime cordial that i put in the back of my own home fridge i Mm -hmm. took some home from the bar like i should have some of this at home shouldn't i and then i just never touch it because you know Mm -hmm. it's just in abundance at work i don't you know and i found a bottle way in the back of the fridge and i was like this has been here for almost two years damn i better pour this out and before pouring it out i kind of looked at it and i was like there's no it looks fine. There's no mold or anything. Do I dare <laughs> drink this? So I put some in some, you know, I tasted it and I was like, am I crazy? This tastes perfectly fine. And I put it in soda water and it, Delicious. it was, I mean, I don't know how to kill that stuff. It just doesn't, there's so much acid and there's so much sugar that 
It yeah. really just, you know, it has a half-life like barium effectively. And I mean, at least that also kind of um, proves or provides some kind of validation then that you're you're somewhat on the path to historical accuracy there because, you know, if it's lasting that long, that's I, what it would have been, that's what they would have wanted initially. I think to test it, we have to strap it into a barrel mm-hmm. and go around the world several times for a period of two or three years. Well, now you're talking about aging it in the fridge, though. That That's something I want to ask, too. Have you, have you tried aging this? You can get those small, like, five-liter barrels or whatnot. Oh, stop. No? Stop. Do I look like that much of a nerd? No, yes, I do. I'm sure I do. But, um, no, I'm not interested in how long it can live or... You're not barrel what, aging. You're, you're not barrel aging going it, to be. No. Yeah, no. I want... Fre- See, this is my whole... This is my whole problem with everything. I like young spirits. I like young wines. I like things to be fresh and upfront and mm-hmm. taste of what they're made of. Mm-hmm. Not wood. I like wood in certain respects, but um, just not in everything I drink. And I think that's a key point about your approach to this drink. And I want to take a quick tangent here, if we can, because on a previous episode, uh, on the Martini episode, we were chatting with our guest John Clark Gennetti about uh, the shaken, you know, the Bond martini, the shaken martini. And we both gave it a pretty hard time. Mm -hmm. And then I was contacted by someone who we both know, Dr. Jessica Spector from Yale, who actually introduced both of us. And she was saying, well, you know, you and John are both wrong because neither of you have tried that recipe as it was made in the 50s. And I said, okay, yeah, I concede that we don't have those. That's right. We don't have those ingredients to hand. That may have been a well-made shaken drink at the time. But what I'm trying to get at here is why, how important is historical accuracy? Like, why do we do these things in the bar? We, in the bar world, we certainly seem to do it so often, whether it's reviving old cocktails or techniques. Like, why is it important? And at what point is it not important? And is that point basically barrel-aging your lime cordial? You have to take everything case by case, of course. Like some things are are important only as a template for, for like like this. I'm like, what is a lime cordial? I don't actually know what this is, and it turns out there's enormous history of it in in the Far East and mm-hmm. and with you know the British Navy, et cetera, et cetera. And that gives you some sort of a trail of crumbs to follow to make whatever you think is going to be the most supernal lime cordial, and you have to mess around with that for a way, like. There are, you know, there's this whole movement now of, of garnering all these kind of old bitters and old spirits and whatnot to make an actual version of a 1923 sidecar. Yeah. But that's not a 1923 sidecar, is it? Because they weren't drinking spirits that were 70 years yeah. old at the time. Or <laughs> I mean, like, and you can't convince me. I'm sorry as well. Like, one thing I would say when it comes to whiskey specifically, right? There's dusty hunters in the bourbon world and and whatnot, and they're looking for old, you know, wild turkey from 1970. I'm sorry, but distillation practices have improved since then. Sure, you're you're drinking a piece of history, but as a whole, we are doing things better in many respects. Like, so just because it's old doesn't mean that it's better. Uh, You know, I can't speak exactly to the bourbon industry and the changes in that, but I know a great deal about the changes in in the Scottish whiskey industry Mm -hmm. and... And a lot of things have changed over the course of 50 years there in terms of, you know, actual wood firing of stills Mm -hmm. versus steam coils, um, uh, chill filtration. Barrels are obviously different post-repeal than they were beforehand. Mm -hmm. A lot of them were sharing. We could be more precise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been a ton of people like, well, whiskey's whiskey, right? Not always so much. And so those things do change. But, um, yeah, so you have a gin that's 70 years old. What's going to be left of that? I mean, you're, mm. that's just distilled, you know, straight, supposedly neutral spirit with aromatics. Mm. I don't want that. Yeah, it's not supposed to, to change over time. Anyway, that was that was a very, very wide sidestep, so yes. I apologize for that. But I think that it's relevant to today's conversation and, okay. and the ingredient that we're talking about. Um, so do you have any final thoughts about the, the your cordial, or can you tell us your recipe and, and how you're kind of finished? final gimlet comes out my recipe <laughs> um i know that i published the recipe in in uh in the piece i did for the times mm-hmm. there is some recipe there like my recipe nowadays starts first peel 250 limes and add to that <laughs> you know such and such mm-hmm. kilos of sugar mm-hmm. to start it on mm-hmm. the oleosaccharum i mean it's not a very viable recipe for people at home no no it no, makes no. 
something on the order of 22 liters. You know, and things don't scale so well. No, I, I would definitely recommend that that Times article is still out there. And if not, there's one that I don't want to plug myself here, but I've written about this before uh, on Vine Pair, and you can check it out. And I link to your recipe there, just in case you want to, okay. just in case you want to find it easy, and you also want to show Vine Pair some we love. We might have Thank even did much. we update the recipe when I, when you and I talked about that. I n- we I, I don't think so. There, there, there's there may be some comments in there, but you can find you can find that online, folks. Um, but yeah, so then your gimlet. So you have this, you have 250 liters just sitting in the basement of Long Island Bar. We should mention, by the way, in, in New York, here in New York City. Um, so what happens? How do you bring everything together? How do I bring everything together? So uh, I sort of did all this research about the uh, gimlet and the cordial mm-hmm. a couple of years before I started the bar. So the bar is mm-hmm. eight years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in Brooklyn on the, uh, on the corner of Atlantic Avenue and Henry Street. And so... When we started it, I was I was thinking I had already been drinking these gimlets for a couple of years, and I thought, I mean, if this is like my favorite thing to drink, why wouldn't I put this on the menu? I've put so much time and thought into this. I, and my whole thing about putting together menus is, I think a lot of people in this industry are like, oh, you're not going to put a corpse reviver on your menu. Like everybody does a corpse. Like that's just so done and common and you, th- and you forget that like the layperson, the customer who walks yeah. in your door has no clue what a corpse survivor is or a properly made gimlet. They, they haven't clue one as to what would go into that, nor that you've done all this enormous amount of footwork and handwork mm-hmm. and labor to produce such a thing. Um, and so I thought, take your favorite things and put them on your menu because people will be as astonished as you are. And, and if they're not, then you can take it off and, and realize it's too much work and nobody sort of gets it. And that certainly happened with quite a few drinks. But the gimlet from day one, the gimlet became our sort of house drink, mm. quote unquote, on, on the menu. And we've never really been able to remove it mm-hmm. um, because it's just, it just outsells everything else that we do mm-hmm. by miles. And, and though, though it is a ton of work and limes right now are, are at $95 a case. Like, uh, you know, there was a point a few years ago where limes were suddenly unattainable and we had to substitute sort of a, I made a lemon cordial and we did uh, something I called a lemon quinine fix uh, simply because there weren't limes available anymore. Wow. I'm sort of considering like, should we go back to that? Limes are going towards a hundred dollars a case and it takes you what, two cases to make just a batch. And that's crazy. And then more for the juice and et cetera, et cetera. And so, like you either offer this drink at $25 or you just kind of can't do it. But mm-hmm. um, that's a thought for later if these things go on and on. But uh, yeah, it's it's become our sort of house drink. And it's it's very simple, but it's also very complex. You ha- the, All the work is up front in making the cordial and then and it's simply throwing gin and the cordial together with some fresh lime juice. And what proportions there what ratios okay so we use uh two ounces of gin to one ounce currently of cordial mm-hmm. and three quarters of an ounce of fresh lime juice mm-hmm. and shake that together and strain it onto fresh ice and toss in a, a lime wheel if you put a lime wedge then people instantly pick up the lime wedge and squeeze it into the drink without tasting it or thinking you know the thought is oh, it's that's the whole here pepper to, thing again man yeah, i mean i mean uh, no one no one likes as much pepper on food as i do so <laughs> You can't stop. Like, I'll keep that person grinding that pepper for three minutes on the table. Before you've tasted it? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. Um, but so that's that's the thinking. But you, you serve this over ice then. That That's interesting. I would assume this to be served up. What do I know? Some people, some people get very, a little bit hinky about that. People say, Ugh, you're supposedly making a real gimlet, but it's not even up. And I think I've searched and searched and searched for a proper spec on how the gimlet is made. There's... N- Nobody can point to an absolute here. Mm-hmm. I see it in in all kinds of different ways. You can certainly have it up, and lots of people order it up. But we serve it on the rocks because it's so in your face. It's such an intense drink. It's punchy. But yeah, it is is really grabby, and it's really. I mean, the Italian have, have this great word agrodolce, which mm-hmm. means it's sweet and sour. I mm-hmm. mean, it's so sweet sour, but it's also just so so intense mm-hmm. that I feel like it benefits from that dilution. Obviously, it gets diluted from shaking, maybe twenty to twenty-six percent or something like that. But if you if you pour it then over ice, you can get something like a thirty percent dilution on that. And I feel like it needs that to open up and 
become palatable. I can't. But that makes so much more sense or sounds so much more compelling than someone saying, yeah, well, you need to set me five minutes ago saying, yeah, you need to, you need to serve this up because, you know, it's this style of drink or whatever. No, you've, you've thought about that. You tasted it. And that's, that's your preference. Some things are just too intense up. And I think uh, since the, you know, what we call the cocktail renaissance, say, in the, you know, turn of the, turn of the, of the century, um, and that, that was the mode of doing everything, like shaking it very little time on large ice and keeping the concentration, keeping that strength, you know, as little dilution as possible. And that is completely anathema to the way I think. I, I want a lot of dilution, a lot of water to open up a cocktail and make it palatable and make those aromas like volatile and just make it more user-friendly. So many drinks are s way too concentrated for me. And so you're using a little bit of fresh lime juice in there as well, just to kind of, just to, to brighten it up slightly to cut through that, that, that sweet and sour, you know, simplification. Um, and then what about gin? Um, do, do you, how do you, how much do you think about that? What do you go for? Is it just? I think a lot about gin, but mm. um, I've Me used, I've, we've gone through, you know, to be quite frank, like you use for a gin what you what you get at what you respect yep. and what you get at a very good price. And so I've gone through all kinds of gin. I love Tanqueray. Tanqueray has a very elemental aromatic profile. It's four aromatics in Tanqueray, and it's a it's a very um, high ABV gin. Mm -hmm. It's forty seven point something. Um, I started with that, and then we've gone to this. We've gone to Simon Ford's gin. We've used Excellent. Citadel. We've used. Uh, used any number of gins in it. What about uh, Plymouth with kind of that more citrusy profile? Plymouth uh, to me is is a, is the spectacular martini gin. Okay. Because of its low ABV, it's 40%. Um, I didn't realize it was maybe, that low. Maybe it's 41 point something. I think it's just above 40. Um, That's low though, for, um, for gin. But it's low, yeah. So I don't, I can't use Plymouth in something like a gin and tonic mm. or a or this. I want something with a little more punch to punch it because there's so much sugar, there's so much acid going on there. You need a gin that that punches its weight in in this. And, and that's that, no longer beef eater either, used sadly. To be beef eater, but I'm I'm boycotting beef eater. Sorry. I, I just, want my 3% ABV back. You know, it's it's 44%, which is what Ford's is also. Yeah. <laughs> People have pointed out to me, well, you love Ford's gin, so why are you boycotting beef, beef eater? I'm boycotting beef eater because they did this really cynical thing of Pulling the gin during the pandemic. During the pandemic. And, you know, not telling anybody. And then just suddenly through sleight of hand reissuing it like, yeah. oh, Beef Eater's back. And not saying, oh, we've reduced the ABV so that we save a ton of money on mm -hmm. selling you a little more water than gin. You know that in 10 years' time, people are going to look back and you look, they're going to say, you know, that's not a proper G&T from 2010 because the Beef Eater that you're using today is actually 3% lower than that. Yeah, but I'm going to be a millionaire because I put by two cases of the old beef eater that I had on hand still. And I'm just waiting for the nerds to come around. Um, and anybody listening, you can buy these for $1.27 a case right now. And then you can get three, four new juicers for yeah, your gimlet. Exactly. <laughs> so I want to talk about something here, moving past the gimlet slightly, but I want to bring something up. You're the second guest on our show who has not only authored a book, but also narrated that book on um, on Audible. Well, it's, it's available now on Audible. The name of your book is Cosmopolitan, funnily enough. And I want to say, first of all, I'm a big fan, and I, I enjoy the narration too, so good job on that. I'm going to put that out there first. But there's a, there, there's a part in the audio book that really struck me, especially knowing that the way that you approach the gimlet. And it's, it's pretty early on, and you talk about the way that your father approached making G&Ts and how, besides wine, which you'd had as kind of younger, kind of watered down a little bit, this was maybe one of your, your first experiences with a, a real drink or a properly made drink. You talk about the extreme length with which your dad goes to, to kind of peel the citrus, and you mentioned it earlier here in this episode. And when I was listening to that, it kind of struck me that, you, th this is so natural that you would kind of approach the gimlet in the same way because your dad has the G&T recipe down. There are so many crossovers between the G&T and the gimlet if we want to talk about the navy and just the ingredients. Gym. I mean, I don't want to go too far into psychology here, but, you know, that's just something that struck me. 
it was set up earlier saying, yeah, so my father, my father was Italian and he was a research chemist. He was also a spectacular cook. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was just as nothing for him to, he had, he loved gin and tonics and he had a way of preparing them that was sort of my initial entry into mixed drinks. It's, it was, you know, he would let us have these from the time I was, I don't know, 15 or something. Um, in small amounts, of course, but just a glass of gin and tonic at the end of the day. But he would, <clears throat> he would take the lime, he wouldn't peel it, he would take a lime and juice it, and then he would julienne the peel, mm -hmm. the entire husk. And he would then take all of those julienned lime peels and huck them in a big crystal pitcher and then pour a pretty fair amount of gin in on that. And it was, it was initially just supermarket gin. And I tried to convince him that in fact, the gin makes a difference. And he was like, ah, oh, that's, that's nonsense. And so I brought him a large handle of Tanqueray once as a gift. Handle of the tank. Yeah. The best. And, uh, and I, um, I won that, uh, I won <laughs> that argument. And so ever afterwards he would use Tanqueray. Um, and so he would, he would put, he would effectively macerate the, the lime peels in the gin and he pointed out, being a chemist, I'm simply using the gin as the solvent it actually is to extract the oil from that the peels. Sense. And that oil is extremely aromatic and you should incorporate it in the drink. And yet no one does. You simply make a gin and tonic, you pour gin with tonic water and you hock a, you know, a lime piece in there. And that's supposed to be a gin and tonic, but the lime has so much more to give. <clears throat> and so that was my introduction to the gin and tonic. And then you carefully sort of, he would then thwack ice cubes until they were you know, <laughs> sort of cracked and put them in on top of that. Surface and then they carefully pour in chilled tonic water down the side of the pitcher and stir it very cautiously with a long glass rod and then take the hole out to the porch and we would pour gin and tonics. And this was sort of my introduction to drinking. And yeah, that, that set a, a template for me later on in that you can take the simplest things. I mean, I've used my dad's gin and tonic in lectures and whatnot that I've gone around uh, to illustrate for people that you can take the simplest, most bare bones drink that you can possibly think of. Mm -hmm. I now substitute the vodka soda for my for my dad's gin and tonic because it's an even simpler drink that, yeah. that, ha that <clears throat> most bartenders hold in absolute revulsion. You know? <laughs> but it's a similar thing. You, you can think about every single, <clears throat> pardon me, every single element of a cocktail and really take it in. How much ice are you putting in? That's a huge thing. How much ice are you putting in the glass? Because you're going. To, that determines how much tonic you can get. And if you don't think of a gin and tonic or a vodka and soda as having a speck the way you do every other drink, you're not taking the care with every single cocktail that you perhaps should be. I always tell bartenders, you know, my own bartenders, who are like, oh, they want some stupid Tito's and soda. You know, they can go to hell. And I think... Now, why are you holding this particular person in disesteem simply because you don't happen to like Tito's and soda? Mm -hmm. If this was your mother, I always say this, if that's your mom and she wants a Tito's and soda, are you going to spit in the ice and like hand her some like drink that you fobbed off yeah. in this terrible way? Or are you actually going to think mom wants a Tito's and soda? I'm going to make her the perfect Tito's and soda. It's going to be two ounces of Tito's. I'm going to put half, half the glass filled with ice so that I have enough volume left to, so that there's some real spritz in there. And, you know, mom might be English and she might want a lemon rather than a lime. Americans like lime, but, you know, the English might want a lemon. So I'm going to put both in there. It's like, Cheaper. have you really thought about this drink enough to think, what does your customer, like, if somebody orders a Tito and soda, how do I make the perfect Tito mm -hmm. and soda? Rather than, you know, you know, making a perfect old-fashioned because that nerd wants an old-fashioned, but... This fool wants a Tito's and soda. Reminds me of the way I would see some chefs prepare a well-done steak, and that really used to piss me off because they would prod at the thing on the grill to try and make it cook quicker. Mm -hmm. And basically, like, what's up to you the way that someone likes the, the, the cuisson of someone's steak? Like, treat it with respect as well. This is somebody who wants something a specific way, and mm -hmm. so they're to be denigrated while somebody else who orders something that you agree with? Yeah. It's, it's antithetical to everything that we're supposed to be doing in right. the hospitality industry. Exactly. <laughs> Are you really, I, mean, I point this out constantly to my bartenders, like, you think you're some hot shit bartender, but you're looking down on certain people for certain drinks. And I, I know this because I used to do this. And I had to take myself in hand and say, you're a bit of a jackass. Mm -hmm. You know, look at your own behavior. Understand, if your mother ordered this drink, you would make it 
happily and with great mm-hmm. forethought and caution. But because this person wants this drink that you don't agree with and that you personally wouldn't drink, mm-hmm. you're now being all snarky about it. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It makes so, you, in effect, a bad bartender. Mm-hmm. Look at yourself in the mirror and realize, oh, I'm a bad bartender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Toby, that's been a, a really enjoyable exploration into history, into into more recent history, and into modern times. Do you have any final thoughts about the Gimlet before we move on to our stock questions to finish things? I don't, um, except try one. It will blow your mind. Mm-hmm. So question number one, and I'm going to actually change this question. Normal, regular listeners will realize, so I want to point that out. I'll tell you the normal question beforehand, just just so that we're not catching you off guard, but I think the new one is better. So typically at this point, I would ask people, what's the first bottle that makes it onto any of your bar programs? I think a better question is, which category of spirit is best represented on your back bar and why? Wow. Um, I, I sort of, <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question quite because when you're putting together a bar, you have to have all the sort of categories. Mm-hmm. Um, purely numerical terms then, quantity-wise. Well, it's, it's that you have to have a certain breadth of, of base spirits in order to, it's like, what instrument do you bring out to make a band? Uh, <laughs> wait a minute, what? You need all the instruments. You can't just have a band with the drums, can you, very well? Um, you need sort of all the things. And that's the same with the bar. I, I mean, one, th- one thing that I will point out that's interesting is that certainly vodka is there because there was, a, there was just an era in the beginning of sort of the cocktail renaissance where everybody decided, like, vodka is bad and vodka is anathema to what we do and we make drinks out of rum and whiskey and your neighbor and all these things you know it's like a a sort of uh inner inside joke with myself for people who are putting too many flourishes on a drink and whatnot it's like oh this has you know as uh cheetah pekin and it has lime juice and it has um passion fruit juice and grapefruit juice and and it also has your neighbor and it has this and that i always say what no batavian arak (laughs) <laughs> and people take it very seriously like no there's no Batavian Eric it's just like there was just was a moment where Batavian Eric was in everything or you know you can substitute specific you could say Setol now mm-hmm. or Recia or whatever Saint Germain yeah whatever like yeah Saint Germain was the butter of the world for a while and um, and yet people were actively eschewing vodka because it's you know looked down upon because norms you know mm-hmm. The normies drink that. Mm -hmm. But to me, sort of nothing's off limits. You should have, I'm not looking for a million of anything. You should just have the, you know, what you think are the best few spirits, your your pick of the top Mm -hmm. six or seven gins, the top six or seven rums that you need to like, formulate and are you still on that that premium rum thing that's just that's just a a link there to the book if you want to know what that's about people go out there and buy it read it listen to it but are you still still a big fan of of high-end rums as you were i mean uh, you know the rum thing has gone through the roof since i wrote that book i mean there was just uh, the it's the next knowledge of rum and the following of rum in this country was uh prehensile really at that point and now i mean people are just the, the rum thing is just through the roof um, but yes, I'm a huge fan of rums. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Question number two. Which ingredient or tool is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Oh, that's easy. The OXO oyster knife. Yeah, you wouldn't think so, right? The most useful tool in the history of mankind, actually, is the OXO Good Grips oyster knife. Are you fucking with me here? No, not at all. That's why I'm being that specific. Okay. Uh, I mean, I have one. What everywhere. is it for? For in, in case folks aren't aware of what exactly that is. Okay, it's an oyster knife. As in small. As in for a small knife with a big handle mm-hmm. that is not sharp but is pointy for opening oysters. And what are you using that for? Every single thing that you need it for, and you need it for everything. Nice. You need it for opening boxes. You need it for. Uh, pulling things out of the drain that you can't reach. You, I mean, there are 175 uses 
wow. for this thing. And I've turned so many people onto that and they're like, oh my God, you've changed my life. That, <laughs> that stupid oyster knife, I use it for everything. I'm like, yes, you use it for everything because you have beautiful knives that you keep impeccably sharp that mm-hmm. you can't use for a lot of things. You can use the oyster knife for anything. Oh nice. no, I have gum on the bottom of my shoe. Oxo oyster. Knife. <laughs> like, oh no, I have to go like, literally I have to like, punch um i i have this olive oil container and i can't get yep. the last third out because there's a vacuum formed in it i have to punch a huge hole in the top of this olive oil can oxo oyster knife like you can do anything with it it's indestructible it's short it'll you can't break it you can't dull it it has a great tip i mean you can certainly hurt yourself with it so be careful yeah but maybe get one of those chain mail gloves I mean, no, I think then you'll really hurt yourself. I think if you wear the glove and... Well, that's supposed to go on the other hand. Just this summer, I used it for the first time to open oysters. Mm-hmm. I have to say, it's not great at opening oysters. It's overrated, by the way, shocking oysters. It's not that fun. Leave that one to the pros. It is not fun. Actually, once you get it done, a friend of mine who was a fishmonger showed me the, the way to do it. Where you get mm-hmm. in there, you actually don't need anything sharp. I no. Mean, you get in there and you turn it and it's just a pop and then you cut the, the adductor muscle and it's really simple. It's like if you want a Sabre champagne, you should see the way that our producer here, Keith Beavers, Sabres a bottle of champagne. He'll really? do it with anything. Really? Yeah. <laughs> we digress. Um, we digress, <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe a So that's my... That's you could my probably Sabre a bottle of champagne with an oyster knife I, as well. You absolutely can. Mm-hmm. You could absolutely use the Oxo Good Grips oyster knife. Fantastic. And I'm going to do it. I am sold. I'm buying one. Question number three, what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? Can we meet for an hour here for a second? Um, um, I've received while working in this industry. Ouch. Uh, Let's see. What is the, oh, yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to hearken back to my, to my book, but. Uh, I wouldn't say in this industry necessarily, but when I um, went to Florence to visit my family, I had an uncle, my uncle Giuliano there, who was uh, sort of the patriarch of the family, and he was a larger-than-life figure, and he, he asked me how things are going in, uh, in New York and what am I doing, blah, 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 and I sort of very embarrassedly said, uh, I mean, things are going all right. I'm just, I'm just bartending right now. It's just kind of embarrassing, but, um, you know, I'm thinking of going to law school and thinking of doing this and, you know, like a storm crossed his brow and he thought, and he, you know, just that cut into me. He was like, what are you talking that way for? You have a job. You have a job. That's something to be proud of. You don't like denigrate your job. You don't like, he was just absolutely, he's the guy who lived through the war and like came up to be chief of police of Florence. And, uh, you know, he was just absolutely, and he had worked in restaurants. He was like, every single job you do, you do it to the absolute best of your ability, and that's the way you advance into other things in life. Mm-hmm. Other, you know, and if you're ashamed of something you do, you're never going to get ahead. A mm-hmm. And you know, he just dressed me down brutally, just like, just literally with like eyes of fire. And I was like, "Yes, sir," but I really took it in, and I thought, uh, "Okay, uh, yeah." And it you made are just still a, doing it. Made a sea change in my sort of thinking about bartending, where I thought where I suddenly realized like I don't value this job and I'm sort of embarrassed by it. And I sort of treat people badly because I think the job is sort of beneath me in some way. Ergo, I'm a shit bartender. Like I looked at my own bartender and I'm like, you know, I thought I was like some hot shit bartender, but I'm actually just plainly a shit bartender. And that's where I started becoming a good bartender. Fantastic. Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, which one would it be? Mm. Can be past or present. Right. Yeah, if I could only visit one last bar in my life, I would visit the now no longer extant Fitzcarraldo in Paris, which was a bar that was in Paris in the 80s. Um, that was just an absolute zoo, but a thing of beauty. It was in the it's sort of dead center of Paris, right by the Beaubourg. Uh, mm-hmm if you can imagine such a thing nowadays, which you just can't, I mean, it's like imagining something in sort of the center of Times Square. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Um, a very similar kind of scenario, but um, yeah, it was, a, it was this crazy bar that was just run by people who were basically artists. And every two months or so 
they had the bar completely redesigned by a different artist. And so one day you would kind of come in and it would be completely decked out in sort of silver mylar with like plastic baby dolls all over the place. And then, you know, and two months later you would go in and it was um, sort of done like in a sort of timbered setting with live trees all over. And it was just, you never knew what you were walking into. And it was this incredible mix of Parisians and, and emigres and students and everything else. And it was just a wild space. I've never been in a bar that was quite that sort of open and free. Sounds magical. It was amazing. And of course, as such, it could never last. Mm -hmm. Final question for you. If you knew that the last cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you make or order? If I knew that this cocktail was to be my last cocktail would I make or order? Mm. That is an excellent question. You really got to go down slugging, don't you? I would uh, say so. I mean, I think I would probably just have a glass of superb champagne. <sighs> if I just thought, here I go. Goodbye, lovely yeah. world. Raise your spirits just for a, a short while. You need something bubbly just to like mm. be a little defiant. <laughs> yeah. And bonus question, because we let... We let Alperin have this one. Okay. I feel like we should let you. All right. Knowing that you're a music fan, what would you be listening to at that time? Actually, I'm going to say as a Brit, which Beatles album would you be listening to at that time? Which Beatles album would I be listening to with my last final glass of champagne? Um, probably Revolver. Yeah? Yeah. That's where you're going? I think so. Nice. Yeah. Is that the best Beatles album? No, there's no best Beatles album. There are different eras of the Beatles, and um, I can't think of a bad album that they put out. I might have to argue with you on that one. You can. Best Beatles album? Best of the Beatles? Fucking excellent. (laughs) They even knew it when they came up with the title. But which one? The red one or the blue one? I think it's the the blue one that has the later stuff, right? That's really good. Toby, it's been a blast. Thank you for having me on. Let's go have a G&T. I'm ready. And we'll follow up with the punchy gimlet. All right. Fantastic. Cheers. Okay, that was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded and produced in New York City by myself and Keith Beavers, VinePair's tastings director and all-round podcast guru. Of course, I want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team. Too many awesome people to mention. They know who they are. But I want to give some credit here to Danielle Grinberg, art director at VinePair, for designing the awesome show logo. And listen to that music. That's a Darby Seaside original. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>